This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Soyuz Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Whakatani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How's it going? Well, it's going very well. This is our 400th episode. I love that, Sam. And I'll just take this moment to remind you and for any listeners who haven't heard that story that we were not going to get to 50. You remember when we first started and it was only supposed to be for a couple of weeks and I said, oh, we could do 50, and you said no. (laughs) <laughs> but we're having said, such a good time <laughs> and then I said I reckon we'll get to 100 and you said no we definitely won't get to 100 and here we are at 400 episodes good work Sam but there's still quite a few billion people we haven't talked to yet exactly <laughs> so I suspect we'll be here for some time indeed and who are we introducing today very appropriate um, that we should be interviewing Louise Saunders today Louise is the reasonably uh, newly appointed first ever CEO of the Manaki Kaimai Mamaku Trust and um, that sits in a range of hills that sits between the uh, between Tauranga and the Waikato. Uh, it is an um, amazing uh, bit of the country really and Louise is a pretty amazing person so I get the privilege of working with her, and it's really nice to have you here today, Louise. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, and I feel very honoured to be number 400 in your set of interviews. It actually is quite apt, given our project. So, yeah, thanks for having me. That's all good. Welcome. Where are you, Louise? I am based in sunny Tauranga, and I'm very fortunate to be located at the moment on the Mongatapu Peninsula. So I, from my seat, have a view of Mount Monganui. And I also have a view of the beautiful Kaimai Mamaku Ranges. So, yeah, it's a very, very lovely spot today. And we're asking people how their bubble life has been. We've done that 400 times now. It's partly turning into history but because it's now a traffic light and a whatever else. But how was your bubble life? Um, well, the, the various bubbles have been variously fun and stressful and chaotic and relaxing, actually, for me, because in the first bubble, the first lockdown, I had five children at home, uh, and we were trying to scramble to get headsets and um, get them set up for online learning and and all of that stuff. By the time we came to our second lockdown um, and then our COVID isolation, we had it down pat really and so the kids were well practiced at being sent out for runs around the block and um, countdown and and pack and save delivering our food and all of that kind of stuff so yeah the first one 
the government made that delightful decision, which every parent hated, of having two weeks of holiday first, while the rest of us were actually still trying to work full time. And that was madness in my house, absolute madness. So I had to develop my own school program to get me through that first two weeks with at least one or two of my remaining marbles still intact. So I developed a school program and I had them watching NASA videos and learning how to drive and learning the road code and all sorts of stuff. So that got us through our first two weeks. And after that, by crikey, by the time we got to our COVID lockdown, where we actually had COVID, it was a doddle. So did the marbles survive? No, I haven't had marbles for a long time, Sam. (laughs) (laughs) Mawera can tell you that. (laughs) So we, in addition to... Looking after the kids and surviving a pandemic, were you working? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I had, at the time I was working for a company called Boffer Miskill, and I had a team that I was also managing, trying to manage remotely, and a lot of them had really young children, and it was a really, really stressful time because, of course, none of us knew what that was going to look like. None of us knew what the economy was going to do. We didn't know if we were still going to have jobs in three weeks' time or six weeks' time or a year's time. Um, It was anybody's guess and there was a lot of managing of people's stress, being that shoulder to cry on, that ear to listen, um, as well as obviously managing the kids in the household and so on. So, yeah, it was was pretty tough that first time around. Of course, by the second and third time around, everybody's got it down pat and there was much less of that. We have an economy that's flourishing, a job market that's, you know, super secure. So, yeah, I think as it's gone along, we've all made the best of it, most of us. And yeah, I think there were probably some pretty special silver linings to come out of COVID and we're lucky enough to have one of those silver linings. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's had a good outcome. Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have the mutton birds with nature. Why this one? Um, New Zealand um, song. I love New Zealand music. Um, It was... Um, best song of voted best song of all time of New Zealand music a few years ago. Um, it was first written, I think, in '69, and then covered later by the Mutton Birds and made popular. Uh, and I think that it is, if you think about it, the project that we're involved in, the mission of the project is to restore the Māori of the Kaimai Mamaku. And if you think about it and you really try to drill down into what Māori really means, life force or essence or however you want to word that, this is really what the song is about. It wasn't necessarily written for that, but that's, that is really what the song is about. If you really get into the words, it's um, a really fantastic piece of music and it's all Kiwi. Falling leaves, I pick my way slowly Talking a 
turn something new Mine's light with dew Luigi gave us some hint there as to the work you do with the choice of your song. What sort of work do you do? Um, so I am um, lucky enough to be the Chief Executive Officer, CEO of the Manaki Kaimai Mamaku Trust. And um, the trust is is actually got a really long history. It's only been formed since 2019, but it was formed based on um, more than a decade of the community expressing concern about the state of the Kaimai Mamaku forests in their catchments. Um, and so um, that culminated in the end in the trust being formed so that there was some form of entity into which money could be placed if action was ever going to happen beyond what the government can spend with regional councils and Department of Conservation and so on. So um, 2019 came and we had a, a trust in place and the intention of it was always to be co-governed but it it wasn't set up quite as it had been intended. And so it was restructured in 2020 so that we had um, 11 trustees. Um, there are six Māori trustees um, and five community trustees. And uh, I'm just so lucky to work with a board that covers such a breadth of skill and interest and um, in, in areas of interest. And yeah, it's just a fantastic place. So they, um, Having formed that trust and having its um, co-governance and operations working really well and having appointed me, um, I then had to um, go like the clappers to get ourselves in a position where the Department of Conservation would be ready to hand over their second biggest forest restoration project. So when I talked about the silver linings of COVID, of course, one of the biggest silver linings was Jobs for Nature was formed as part of the COVID recovery package. And um, the government decided on um, quite a suite of different sorts of restoration projects, both biosecurity ones like wilding pines and kauri dieback and so on, um, but also forest and, and ecosystem restoration projects. And of those, um, the Kaimai Mamaku restoration project was um, allocated $19.4 million. Uh, and that makes it the fifth largest of the Jobs for Nature projects and the second largest behind the Raukumara project for forest restoration projects. So I get to be the lucky recipient of, of uh, all of the projects that go along with that. It's, yeah, it's been a wild ride and a, a whole heck of a lot of fun by Crikey. <laughs> <laughs> so what sort of perspective do you take to that do you come at that from a, a restoration ecology perspective mixing in with the community mixing in with finances all of those things mushed together yeah it really is um i've come from a career of 25 years of environmental consultancy so when you work in a consulting firm you don't generally stick to just one thing you you have to work for solutions and problem solving for whatever your client brings on the door. So I'm really fortunate that I've had that background in engagement and problem solving and 
um, really specialist ecology right through to really generic um, planning and, and overview policy development, all of that kind of stuff. So I can bring all of that background to the job and that's really what it needs. Um, we have started by allocating money to iwi and hapu projects right from one end of our project area to the other um, and helping them build up their businesses, build up their teams, build up their methods and processes um, and build their own cultural understanding, their monitoring frameworks and so on so that they build for themselves sustainable business. It, it's not just about the conservation action, it's also about so building the resilience of the forest and the catchments and so on. It's also about building resilient businesses because Jobs for Nature is only till 2024, but we're employing people. These are becoming their careers. They're supporting their families. So I can't just be an ecologist in this role. It's not just about forest restoration. It's about building communities. It's about building the connections between people in the Nahiri, people in the whenua. It's about building connection between iwi and hapu and communities in community groups, it's about building understanding. There's just so many facets to it. So yeah, you can't just be a one-trick pony in this job. <laughs> I don't know that any CE ever can, but in this one, with a, go a co govern trust more than anything else, I think you really need to, um, you, need, you need to have the fundamentals, obviously, of restoration ecology, but it, it really is about people, people in the environment. It's, yeah, that's what it's all about. So you say you can't just be an ecologist, but is it about reframing what an ecologist is? It's about reframing what restoration is. Ecologists will be ecologists, that's how they're trained. But restoration, you know, as a co-governed trust, we bring together Western science perspectives, you know, Western accounting systems and, you know, charities registrations and you know, our organisational structure. And we we then apply to that also or bring into the mixed te ao Māori. And the te ao Māori perspective is about bringing people into the environment or seeing people in the environment as part of the environment, not separate from it. And so restoration has to be viewed from that perspective as well as bringing Western science perspectives about monitoring, you know, before and after a control baseline, you know, whatever treatment, you have to bring people into the environment. And I really think that that's the solution for the Kaimai Mamaku. It's in the state it's in because of people, whether it was logging or mining or the introduction of deer or pigs or, or whatever. So bringing people back to the Nahiri, back into the Awa, to reconnect with them, to see the value. I mean, even for myself, I grew up um, on the banks of the Waiho River, um, which is one of the main river systems that um, discharges into Te Kapo Moana and the Firth of Thames. Um, and I watched the change that happened in that river from when I was a kid, when you can stand up in your up to your waist in the water and still see your toes. We had the Haraki Catchment Board come through, clear out all the willows, it opened it all up, the banks collapsed, it became filled with algae, you couldn't see your toes anymore, no eels left, no trout, no um, kura, no um, freshwater mussels, no nothing. It just collapsed the ecosystem and now very slowly it's starting to come back and that's, you know, but it takes people. If we're going to, it doesn't just happen spontaneously, you can't just lock it up and throw away the key and expect it to restore on its own, that's not going to happen. We've got pest animals, we've got pest plants, it needs active management. And so that's what these projects within the Kaimai Mamaku project are all about. It's about bringing people back 
to restore the nahiri, and that's what Māori is all about too. So, is it is it apple pie? Is everything that you do things that people will will immediately see the benefits from, or are the things that are might seem counterintuitive to people? Have you got farmers that you have to convince about riparian planting, or and, and how do you engage people in that kind of conversation? The analogy of apple pie, I think, is actually really apt because it's a recipe with lots of ingredients. And the answer, Sam, is yes to all of those things. I think when it comes to farmers, you're preaching to the converted. They understand the benefits of riparian restoration, of retaining and enhancing wetlands. They understand all of that. Um, That's become part of doing good business in farming these days. So I, I think that's an easy sell. I think what's more difficult is the things that you can't see. So... For the listeners, I have behind me a, a um, backdrop that is the Kaimai Mamaku Ranges. And if you look at that, it looks to all intents and purposes like a beautiful native forest with, you know, it's got it all going on. But underneath underneath the top of the apple pie is a bit of a mess, actually. And so it needs all sorts of ingredients. It needs people doing pest control for animals and all sorts of different sorts of animals. And each of those animals, deer or pigs or stoats or wallabies or possums, they all take a different control method. And iwi and hapu have different perspectives on how that might work. So in some places, toxin use might not be possible because that's just not what iwi and hapu want in their rohi. In other places, that might be okay. So that's the method they use. In some places, um, the pest animals are actually not in particularly high abundance, but what you do have people going through on tracks, bringing in kauri dieback because they've come from Auckland where the Waitakere tracks have been closed down for so long and so they come to the Kaimais and the Mamakus to do their tramping and they bring with them kauri dieback disease. Or you've got um, somewhere like Karangahaki or Mount Tiaraha where actually before you can think about animal pest control you've got to get a forest structure back again because it's just it's toast, you know, like it's scrub up there, it's full of wilding pine and climbing asparagus. And so it really is a very complicated recipe for, you know, your five layer sponge cake. (laughs) (laughs) And each layer of restoration has a different recipe and and a different result. And it's going to take a different amount of time. And at the end, we'll all enjoy the apple pie but it's not going to be an hour in the oven, that's for sure. It's, you know, that's why I think it's quite apt that we're talking about this being the 400th episode because it might be 400 years till we know that we've achieved the restoration of the Modi of this place. Um, certainly, we'll be able to see benefits in four years. Absolutely, we should be making really good progress in 40 years, but it won't be until they are self-sustaining ecosystems up there that are free of pests that we'll know that we've really done what we set out to, and that's likely going to take in the order of 100 years. So how do you you engage people in such a long-term vision? Um, Yeah, that's an interesting question too and something that we're just starting to tackle at the moment. Um, I think one of the things that's really cool about people is that we're all different, and the things that get us really excited are so different from one place to another. And I think that's been the really interesting thing about working with the Iwi and Hapu projects is that they also need to engage within their whānau. On the marae, they need to engage with the project that they're carrying out and 
the things that the project team leaders expected to be exciting to get people engaged with are not what they thought. Um, one of the project teams that was really interesting, they had been doing five minute bird counts and hearing nothing. Um, the project team lead said she could sit there for half an hour and not hear a bird. And she wanted to get her whanau really engaged around this lack of birds. But actually nobody was particularly interested. And it wasn't until they discovered bats there, pecker pecker, that the, that the whanau really got excited about things. And funnily enough, the project team lead said, I don't really care that much about bats, but if this is what it takes, <laughs> then then let's run with it. Let's put out automatic bat monitors. Let's, you know, let's engage with the things that people are interested in. And I think as this project goes along, we're going to spend more and more time refining what it is that really pushes people's buttons. What is it that gets them out there? But I'm also really open to the idea that people don't actually have to be out there killing possums or pulling out weeds, that the ways that they can help vary so much from one place to another. It could be that they go and sit on the edge of the bush and listen, listen for kiwi and put the data into our database. It could be that they notice that arata is flowering and they put that into the database while they're hiking the tracks. It could be that they um, go out there and do some fundraising or they speak to somebody who's in, um, in some sort of business that wants to give to conservation and we have that connection that way. I'm really open to exploring all the avenues for getting people engaged in whatever way suits them because I think if we, if we take a cookie cutter approach to engagement, which people often um, you know, go down that rabbit hole where there's, there's only really one way to do engagement, I don't think we cut it like that. This is such a diverse area. It's, it's huge and there's more than 500,000 people in the communities directly around our area. So I think we have to be really open to engaging in, in any way that we can and across the spectrum too from just, you know, landowners and just people in the community all the way up through the political network. Um, our Prime Minister came from Morrinsville. She came from within eyesight of, of our project area. So, you know, all the way to the top, man. <laughs> do you have a Tahu McKenzie? Do you have a an inspirational educator? Yeah, we do, actually. We're really fortunate. Our patron is Pa McGowan, um, Pa Ropata, Rob McGowan, um, and he um, is, has um, been awarded the Queen's Service Medal for services to um, rongoa and teaching about rongoa medicine. Um, yeah, and he's just fantastic to listen to and um, such a wealth of knowledge. He just engages so readily across the board that, yeah, we're really fortunate. So, But we are looking for an ambassador, um, a public face who um, is well-known, and uh, I've got my eye on a couple of people, but if somebody knows of a, someone who would be a really great um, reasonably high-profile ambassador for us, then uh, by all means, let us know. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokunui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi I hope you're all having the beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. I really hope if you are, and whatever's happening around you, this journey we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding. Very sustaining and illuminating for you or and each day who you are of nature's art, unique and here making better. Thank you. So obviously I'm a bit crook. I'm having a day off today, which is lovely. And I'm so grateful to be able to do this. I've been working non-stop for the last several weeks. And so having a day off is very exciting and 
Uh, it's perfect to celebrate our 400th episode. So congratulations. Happy 400th birthday to you. Happy 400th birthday to you. Happy 400th birthday. Dear beautiful, amazing, blown bubble. Happy 400th birthday to you. We love you. And one for like, happy parade. So yes, I'm super happy. And I just think, oh, Blowing Bubbles is the best show in the world. And, you know, I'm so privileged to be part of it. And yeah, here's my 400th message, which is a message of love and celebration as always. I just feel so grateful really to be able to have this time with you all. And it has really transformed my life, my ability to conceptualize in a way that's helpful for me and so to Sam and the whole Blown Bubbles team thank you for having me and even if my voice is a bit croaky today because I've been teaching for the last million years and having a wonderful time with beautiful people of all different ages at my heart's home Orokanui Sanctuary I can still celebrate with you despite this croaky voice and I can still celebrate you despite its croaky voice and I can still read to you a beautiful blessing by John O'Donoghue for the 400th episode so John O'Donoghue the wonderful late Irish poet who still lives on and spirit lives on says to us may the light of your soul guide you may the light of your soul bless the work you do secret love and warmth of your heart May you see in what you do the beauty of your own soul. May the sacredness of your work bring healing, light and renewal to those who work with you and to those who see and receive your work. May your work never weary you. May it release within you wellspring of refreshment, inspiration and excitement. May you be present in what you do. May you never become lost in the bland absences May the day never burden. May dawn find you awake and alert, approaching your new day with dreams, possibility and promises. May evening find you gracious and fulfilled. May you go into the night blessed, sheltered, and may your soul calm and soul and knew you. And how beautiful, you know, and I just think, oh yes, with everyone that we've talked to on this show and everyone all of you that were connecting it is this process of celebrating our soul's work and our soul's journey and even if uh, we're having to really work hard at the moment which we are you know we're short-staffed and people are away and I don't know uh, there's still so much joy to be found in each day in each moment and there's still so much joy to be found in interaction, in each act of service. So I really hope that you're finding this too. And I really hope you are finding your joy each moment. And I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. Happy 400th show. Kakite. You are listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Louise Saunders. Louise, we, and you know, 400 episodes of talking to people have... Um, talk a lot about hope for the future and the work that you're doing you need to have a high level of hopefulness for the future otherwise there's no point so where is that coming from in you 
what stimulated that sense of hopefulness to grow in you in the first place? Wow, that's an interesting question. Um, I think it's, I'm a natural optimist anyway. So I start with that as my foundation. And I think it's really, really easy to wallow in the sense that we're, that everything is going pear-shaped. Um, I had to find a way to say that nicely, actually, because there's lots and lots of other expressions that you can't say on a podcast. But, <laughs> however, um, but I'm long enough in the tooth to have seen some really positive changes. I've also seen negative changes. I mean, that you know, the Waiho River was a really classic example for me. But then watching it come back, and as you drive around the countryside, you have to learn what I've learned to read the landscape. And the landscape is changing, and it's changing for the good. So you can see areas that people have retired and they've planted along rivers, along steep faces. You see wetlands that are fenced, and uh, you watch that. Well, I can watch their diversity increasing. You hear conversations with landowners and with communities about how they are wanting to improve the environment around them. And in the last maybe two years or so, I suppose. And I think COVID's been a real stimulus for this conversation. You're starting to hear people talk about that connection between people and our well-being and the environment and its well-being. And now that we've made that connection or are starting to talk about that more, I think along with the physical changes we're making to the environment to restore what, what once was, um, I think that that connection, that growing awareness of the connection between people and the environment is a massive cause for hope because humans are nothing if not self-serving, right? <laughs> We're all out for survival in ourselves. And if that's the way that environmental restoration has to happen, then so be it. But I think that that really is cause for hope. If you can go to the GP in Canada and get a prescription not for paracetamol or penicillin, but for a visit to a national park, is your remedy for wellness, then I think things can only be hopeful. Um, I mean, that's, you know, why do we not do that in New Zealand? Of course we should, but actually do we need to? Because in New Zealand, we're so fortunate to have the environment. You know, I, I can sit here and look at Taranga Harbour and it's, you know, right at the bottom of the section or just down the end of the street for anybody as a natural place that they can go and feel engaged. And, you know, we're doing research on this in, in New Zealand. You know, we've had um, uh, researchers actually looking at that connection between people and the environment and rural communities and how it impacts on and contributes to their well-being. So, yeah, I think, you know, as well as the physical changes that are happening out there, as well as the, you know, we're moving from compliance action just having to hold the line through to enhancement action now just as part of good business you know that quadruple bottom line the ESG reporting that people are doing um, within business now the fact that um, shareholders are wanting to be absolutely certain that the businesses that they're investing in are green businesses that they are contributing positive positively to climate change. I think all of these things, this societal change that we're experiencing is cause for hope. Absolutely. Oh. We're doing, there's, a, there's a big team of us doing some pretty hefty work, uh, working with kids, planning uh, to work with kids, 
um, around enabling our kids with the knowledge that they need to go into the future so that they can be part of the solution instead of part of the problem and hopefully combating some of the problems that we're already starting to see with climate anxiety. But how do we deal with parents who, well, adults, not always parents, but just adults in general who, who just um, either are in that denial space or they're just not interested or they don't think that they can actually make a contribution to a solution? What do we do with them? Um, yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think in part the solution is kids. I can remember as a kid, um, back in the days when, um, you know, littering in New Zealand, you know, you had the little tidy kiwi thing and you weren't, you know, all that kind of stuff is showing my age by crikey. Um, and I can remember going on a trip to my um, green and pops, mum and dad smoking in the car, because that's what we did with the windows up, um, all of us trapped in the back. And mum loved minties, absolutely loved minties. And she used to chuck the minty wrappers out the window. And I got absolutely wild with her that you shouldn't be littering, mum. You know, don't throw the minty wrappers out the window. And kids can be a real conscience tugger when it comes to that kind of thing. So I think we just need to continue the journey with the kids because eventually those kids become adults. But I also think there is increasing pressure, peer pressure out there in the community for people to be contributing something in some way. I think the key limitation to that, my observation of it has been, is it's kind of a bit like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, that it, you've got to deal with survival first. If your job is at risk, if you can't put food on the table, um, if, you, if you don't have a safe, warm place to be, then making a contribution to climate change in the environment is just not a thing. It doesn't enter your consciousness. So part of what I love about the projects that we're supporting is that we're actually helping at that basic level to provide people with a safe, secure career with food on the table. And if those people are feeling safe and supported, then they're going to communicate what they're doing. They're, communi they're going to communicate how much they love what they do, the benefits of what they're doing to others. And I think by osmosis, that will happen. You're never going to bring everybody on the journey. That's where people, we are fallible and, and we're, stubborn and we're you know um bloody minded sometimes and i don't think you'll ever bring anyone on the journey but i think we're we're getting we're getting there you know when when you see all the recycling bins out on the street and they're all absolutely chocker but the rubbish bins not so much i think you know we're making progress little bit by little bit i was talking to someone earlier today where we're working on a uh, geocamp program so we're going we're going to run geocamp here in the eastern bay super exciting and um she was talking to me about how they're trying to get the adults in her community to change their position um and things like they're still burning their rubbish and i said but why are they still burning their rubbish because you know that why mm. <laughs> it's just and she said because it's too expensive to take it to the tip yeah. and so so how do we now, like if we've, they know that what they're doing by burning the rubbish is no good, but the system change that we need to happen isn't happening. Yeah. How do we right. now move the, the, the decision makers into that right headspace as well? Exactly the same thing happened with the Climate Change Commission. When they tried to push through um, that ban on uh, new connections to the natural gas reticulated network and for bottled gas 
Now, you know as well as I do in the Eastern Bay community, to not have the ability to use bottled gas as a source of energy for your barbecue and your showers and your stoves is absolutely nuts because your power supply is perennially unreliable despite the best efforts of the power supply companies. So many people live up narrow one-way roads with trees and with rivers beside them and with landslides that come down and all the rest of it. People have to have a source of warmth um, for showers and heating and cooking and all the rest of it. So I think that it was an ill-conceived idea on the part of the Climate Change Commission that only considered urban households and not rural households. And I think that's part of understanding your community, being out in your community and understanding what the pressures really are. Um, It's the same thing with conservation and why a landowner beside a conservation park isn't putting their all into pest control. You know, do do you know what their return on investment is? Do you know what their um, what their level of lending is? Do you know what pressures they're under? Have they had a really rubbish year for their avocados and they've had no income? Um, you know, I think it's it really is a responsibility of decision makers and management and governors to understand what the pressures their community really is under so that they can then, you know, bring into play the systems that are needed to improve things in the way they want them to be. Because that's the you know, that's the whole purpose of a system, right, is that it gives you this data across the board so that you understand which way things are trending. And if you don't then do something with that, um, you know, why are things not trending in the way that, that you want them to? Well, go and find out. Ask the people who are affected. It's it's not hard. It's not, really isn't rocket science. It's, um yeah, I think it, it just comes back to people, hey. Let's squeeze in the second of your music choices. Let's have Dave Dobbin, Welcome Home. Why this one? Kiwi music. <laughs> um, I love Dave Dobbin. He's just the bomb. He's fantastic. All the different music that he's done over the years. But this one, I think, is particularly poignant at the moment. Um, we're reopening our borders again. Our Kiwis are coming home or leaving because they want to go to the islands for a holiday. Eh? Um, but I also think it's particularly um, relevant to our project because so many of our sub-projects are bringing Fano home to their whenua. And the stories that we're getting about reconnection, um, re-engagement with the whenua, rediscovering their tikanga, um, or discovering it for the first time, having never been exposed to it before because they've never had an opportunity to come home, I think the song speaks to that in spades. So, yeah, I thought it was a really apt choice.
Before the break, you were talking about um, the things that the pandemic has benefited climate change and biodiversity collapse. And some of those things are almost not inadvertent, but things like Jobs for Nature has had those benefits. The fact we haven't been traveling has had those benefits. On a, but a, on a sort of a bigger scale, what do you think we can learn from the pandemic and the pandemic response to those bigger sorts of challenges that we face? I think you think you're talking to the Prime Minister. I'm not sure that I can answer that question. Um, Crikey. On a bigger scale, I think we can safely say that we can make a difference by doing less. I think that's probably my take-home thing, and that actually we need to be more caring of each other because, you know, we haven't had a real pandemic since 1918. We've had a couple of world wars in there. but we haven't had something that's made us stop before like this has. And, you know, with all of the frenetic pace of life, it's forced us really to stop and it's forced a lot of people to reevaluate what's important. And I'm hopeful that that reevaluation will also include, you know, what we're, what can we do without? You know, if you go into the supermarket and all those shelves are empty, Do you really need to toss your toys about that? Did you really need that stuff you went in for? Okay, if it's Vegesia, then absolutely you need that. But could you not grow that in your back garden? Um, I think that stopping to, you know, and taking the time to reevaluate is probably the broadest scale benefit of this. And, you know, a lot of people have lost loved ones, have missed major occasions and events in their lives and um, have been without seeing people that they love for the longest time. And it really makes you think, or it should make you think, about what's really, really important. And when you combine that with the last few years of the most horrendous flooding and forest fires and, and all the rest of it, it just shows that we we do need to make some pretty fundamental changes. So I think the broadest scale impact 
that all of this has had is that it's given us time to just reflect. And a lot of people have done that. I hope that we're not all going to go back to just life as normal again. I know that everybody's desperate for that, but I think we can come back to life in a new normal that retains some of that more thoughtful, more considered pace of life and activity that we came to love or hopefully love, um, that we connect more with each other. Um, there were a lot of people that became very disconnected during that time. And I, I do wonder whether some of the protests were more about that disconnection than about what people said we're fighting about. Um, yeah, I, I think that's probably, if I was to look back on what our experience of that was, I think despite the chaos of our, <laughs> of our household, that would have to be the thing that we took on it for sure. That was a good answer. You should be the Prime Minister. No, we've got a good Prime Minister. You should be the next Prime Minister. It's well, interesting. No, that would cause way too many arguments around our family dining table, that's for sure. They would, the kids would want me to change all sorts of requirements about going to school, and that would just be carnage. I'd be back in my bubble again. It would be terrible. It was interesting you mentioned the 1918 pandemic. The, the fact that so many people called this pandemic unprecedented showed that we hadn't as a society really learnt from the 1918 pandemic and that's one of the reasons why we've carried on with blowing bubbles is to try and make sure we are learning from from this pandemic if we put that bigger hat on what we're doing i have some questions to end the show and almost negative time to answer them so we're gonna have to wriggle through them what is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years um crikey a change of career um, would have to be, I think it's been successful, time will tell. <laughs> I'll leave that up to the board to decide. And maybe in 400 years' time, you'll be able to tell me whether or not I was I succeeded. Um, but, I think that's that's been, it had been a long time in the making, and I think it was just, this is just the right job. Um, and but, I would have to say but you're having a good time. that being a mum, what's that? You're having a good time. Absolutely. I'm having a blast. <laughs> um, and I think... Um, my kids, watching my t- kids grow up into the young adults they're becoming. So we are writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in that team. What's your superpower? What got you into the mansion? Not taking myself too seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Wow, that's a good question. Um no, I think I consider myself to be the driving force behind the people who are the people who are actually actually out there doing the hard mahi in the forest and along the rivers and with the kids teaching every day. I don't do that, but I can help them do what they. So, what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, I grew up under that skyline that I'm looking out at, and I see the reverse of that skyline every day, and. I want to make that better than it was when I was growing up. Yeah, I think we need, you know, there's 500,000 people and more, you know, around probably, you're probably actually talking close to 2 million or more of New Zealand's population that are impacted by what we, whether it's being able to go out and get a feeder snapper from the Firth of Thames or Taranga Harbour or going out to do dolphin and whale watching, you know, offshore around Tahua or whatever it happens to be, there's a million reasons why we need to make our forests better and get rid of those awful pests that are up there killing our beautiful native species. 
And I think if that doesn't motivate people to get out of bed in the morning, <laughs> then nothing will. <laughs> so what is the biggest challenge or opportunity that you're looking forward to in the next year or so? I am really, really looking forward to getting my teeth stuck into um, joining up commerce with conservation. I think that a lot of people doubt that it can be done, but I'm absolutely convinced that the time could not be more right for commerce to fund conservation as a direct consequence of doing business, day-to-day business. Yep, that's, that's the biggest challenge. I'm not really particularly interested in the emissions trading scheme. It's only one model. Um, I think that there is a stronger and stronger call out there for every business in New Zealand to be contributing something conservation somehow. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Don't take yourself too seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as um, somebody once said, don't sweat the small stuff and it's all small stuff. We're dealing with some pretty big issues. But if you get too wound up in the size and the scale of the issues, then you just end up spinning wheels and you're getting nothing done. You've got to have fun. You can't take yourself too seriously. Just let it flow. Thank you for that. Moera. Louise, um, these kind of things only work with somebody leading and leading leading this sort of this change as a as a kind of activist itself. So I think of you as an activist and I think of you as an incredible enabler of change. You are the change. Um, I um, am thankful every meeting and every every bit of correspondence um, that we get. Uh, just, you know, I'm just thankful that we get to have you leading the team uh, and leading the charge um, to, to restore the Modi, but to save the future, really, so that our kids get to grow up with this beautiful forest that's theirs. And, yeah, you're doing a great job. Don't stop doing it. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Life's good, I'm loving it, living it to the max Despite the threat of bomb attacks and monetary collapse And yes, perhaps I am naive, but I believe in what I do Cause the world we may believe could be the world where dreams come true So let's just do it, cause we're worth it, be inspired to start again Cause the rules were only written with some paper and a pen And not everything in black and white makes sense, my friends So challenge everything, follow your own rules until the end Cause life's good real thing Not that bullshit superficial image that you're given on your TV screen Life's good And I mean the real thing Not that bullshit superficial image that you're given on your TV screen Life's good Some things in life that money can't buy Some truth from which you can't hide So obey your thirst for knowledge and expand your mind Change your world and realign Cause understanding comes with time And mankind needs to find a brand new paradigm Before the world gets wrecked But don't get upset, learn to treat it with respect Cause it's without a doubt the best a man can get And yes I know that we've a way to go just yet But impossible is nothing when there's nothing to correct And life's good And I mean the real thing not that bullshit superficial image that you're given on your TV screen Life's good, and I mean the real thing Not that bullshit superficial image that you're given on your TV screen
superficial image that you're given on your TV screen lights We need a world where people matter more than profit You want it, you get it, you got it But tell me where's the product that can reach out and touch someone You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We are broadcast on Otago Access Radio every Monday, Wednesday and Friday afternoons at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. This is the Undercover Hippie. I'm Sammy Land in Soyuz Bay, Indonesia, with Muera Karatai in Fakatani, and coming from Mangatapu in Taronga, we've been joined by Louise Saunders. For the 400th time, that was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. Mark This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.